Uh, so this is Infinity License episode 58. Brian, that's you. Uh, I'm Lenny DeFranco, and joining us we have Griffin Sharps. Hello. A, um, an actor, and uh, what else What else would you call yourself? Activist? That you, should, you should just get into that, because are you a singer too? A lot of actors are singers. No, no, I'm a writer and an actor. Nice. That's the other one, yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. And uh, yeah, and so we're here today to talk about... Um, through the lens of a very interesting political shift that Griffin told me about in his own personal life, we're going to talk about the state of politics in our milieu, um, and uh, I don't know, try to try to wrench some useful insights or something out of our well, generally. The, the like, genesis of the, not to step on you, Lee, but the genesis of this conversation started out as you and Griffin, I think, had a party, had a conversation about um, you know where we we sit on the political spectrum and our. We actually had a conversation about Sheol. Really? Uh, which oh, I learned. Oh, I was talking about Sheol last week. I'm not kidding you. I read a book about hell recently. So we're talking about <laughs> hell, right? Sheol, like the yeah, of the death. exactly. Okay, yeah, 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 what yeah, was yeah. this book about hell? It was the Penguin Random House book on hell, where they collected huh. a bunch of like historical, like how we got our modern constitution. Sure, sure, hell. sure. And they talked about all the different Western or like monotheistic traditions, you know. Uh, particularly Christianity, Islam, and Judaism's like conceptions of of hell. And what they, is so they they took they translated historical references going back to essentially just post you know post Jesus times to you know all the way through Dante's Inferno and and yeah. Milton's Paradise Lost and that kind of stuff to modern conceptions of like hell in literature and how we got to the conception of it. It's a good book. Was you, a, that's really. Can you give me one very brief takeaway that's interesting from that? Because I um, would love. To, we should do an entire episode on hell. Yeah, um, it's been a interesting. Like a lot of the one interesting tidbit I took away was that the the story of on Good Friday Jesus dying and then returning on Sunday. Um, early Jews before the Catholic Church had really gotten settled, like the, the there was kind of a Christians and Jews were kind of like the same people. They didn't really, there wasn't a separation in those people. They were just certain ones that accepted Jesus. There were lots of weird Jewish cults. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it hadn't been settled. Dogma hadn't been settled. Yeah. So a lot of people from the Jewish tradition said, oh, when like the Jesus died, he went down to hell and he saved. That's when he went down and he like recruited what we would consider saints today, but like the saints of Israel, like King David, uh, Solomon, that kind yeah. of stuff, and that was just a way for rabbis at the time that were like inter- that were Jesus curious to justify. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Jay curious. The, the early Jews for Jesus were like were like, oh, okay, so that they postulated that that was going on. So he went down and fought this like they created this like mythical battle of him going down to hell for three days while he was between Good Friday and Easter Sunday and rescuing like King David and those kind of people. So cool. that was an interesting. And then it turns out he actually went to heaven. And yeah. let us all in. As, As we all know. Sanitized it. <laughs> anyway, so um, we had a conversation about Sheol because uh, actually Griffin taught me about it. I didn't even know it existed before. Anyway, so when we met, um, we had a conversation uh, in which we were talking about, um, I think it was civil engineering or something, and Griffin basically told me that uh, he had, when he, you graduated from the University of Chicago, yep. probably about the same time we did, what, 2009? 2009, yeah. You're Brian's yes. grade. Yep. And um, I was 2010. And um, at the time that you graduated, you were essentially a uh, committed communist, or a card-carrying communist. How, what's the proper way to no, say no, it? No, no, I was never, never an actual member of the party or anything like that. But yeah, so I just for some like very brief background, I grew up in like a what used to be a pretty standards issue 
Democratic household, you know, middle class. My grandparents were sort of, um, you know, Roosevelt Democrats. My parents were Clinton Democrats, you know. And then I, you know, in high school got into drugs and punk rock. And uh, somebody introduced me to, you know, Gramsci and Hobbsbaum and, ide- and sort of ideas about superstructure and hegemony. And, you know, I wanted to fight the power. And uh, it sort of went from there. And by the time I got through college, I came away with a pretty kind of, um, you know, the expected suite of sort of leftist opinions that you find among people in, in the art world. Uh, it's pretty st- it's pretty impressive to go through University of Chicago and come out with it. I guess you weren't in the economic school. No, 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 exactly. I mean, it was more, it's more conservative than other elite institutions like that, but it's still the baseline is, is, is very, very liberal, especially now. I mean, it's, um, it's a lot, I think that it's this is less true at places like U Chicago or Ivy Leagues, but you know the academy is just getting so homogenized at this point that you know really as the administrators have more and more control and faculty has less and less and the students become consumers more and more, you see the same sorts of opinions regardless of, yeah. of where where things are happening because it's just the same it's just the same pipeline, right? You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. But um, but yeah, so um, I got. Um, involved in this sort of more organized uh, radical politics around the same time that I started getting involved in acting. And for me, it was sort of part of like the same way of thinking about the world. I had this sense that the things that were valuable in life couldn't be created by capitalism. Right, that the sorts of interactions that I wanted to have with people and wanted to cultivate, both on a, a, an interpersonal level, but certainly on a creative level, right, and, and as a career, that, that those weren't um, that the market not only distorted them, but um, but uh, sort of blighted people on an individual level where they weren't capable of the sorts of. Uh, you know, attention or sensitivity or kind of capacity for imagination that that, that made um, the experiences that, you know, make art worthwhile for me at least. Uh, you know. Like alienation. Like, like, part of it's alienation. Some of it too is just about this sense of the, the narrowness of one's economic niche and the, mm-hmm. way, the way in which a human being, you know, comes to be reduced to, you know, just... Their, their capacity right. as, as a particular type of worker, right? right. Or, or consumer, right? Yeah. It's just the two sides of the same coin. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing that started to happen in sort of, I, I guess I first encountered this kind of stuff in like 2007, 2008, um, was, was the kind of first wave of really heavy duty um, identity politics kind of entering into you know, the leftist discourse. And, you know, I, um, I, 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 if I was put on the spot, I would have probably said something like, you know, you know, the patriarchy and racism are structural problems in our society. But the reason that they exist is, is that there's the ruling class as these, as this particular set of values mm-hmm. and they, they, impu- they make that manifest in mm-hmm. the world through their various decisions, either um, in, 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 in the economy, which they control or in politics, which they also control. And that it's all part of the same sort of, um, well, the same sort of, you know, thought cancer and basically that's, that, well that's not an explicitly class-based or marxist explanation because i think that that's pretty broadly true you don't need to be 
you don't need to blame capitalism necessarily for that it, it, to to ascribe it as a mode of social order that's being dictated on us. No, I mean, I I, I think I mean the way I would have conceived of of racism and sexism or you know any of the sort of um, bugbears of identity politics would have been as a sort of peculiarities of history you know we have these we have a we have a particular social class right that that has a particular hist- uh, ethnic makeup and set of sort of uh, cultural baggage because of the accidents of history and because we live in this oppressive economic structure they're able to impose those anxieties and um and prejudices on the rest of us. This is, this is sort of how I looked at the world for a so long the, time. So what you're saying is that the, uh, the ideology at the, at the time is that the economic order authorizes the the continuation of like the that's the method that the social order is transmitted through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I uh, I stuck with that way of looking at the world really until probably about 2015, 2016. Uh, when I had a series of experiences in acting grad school as a producer, actually, uh, producing work, uh, student work at Brown, where I was getting my master's. Uh, and it was around the time, it was, well, I remember it was right after the, uh, the Charleston shooting, and Dylan Roof mm-hmm. and all that bullshit. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to produce and, and get people to, to work on more politically explicit stuff and, and particularly about race, right? And this was you know, Black Lives Matter was was kind of bubbling up to the surface and all this other stuff. And uh, I had a series of experiences over the course of that year that really threw me for a loop and left me without uh, a frame of reference. And I found deeply confusing uh, because what I found was that there were, for Every person that was committed to some kind of social justice, there were a lot of people that just didn't want to do any work. <laughs> um, yeah. And so in the context of grad school, what that meant was like the students, you know, I don't know if you remember, this was a big deal at Brown and at Yale as well. But you know, there was all these like student organ- organized, uh, all these um, different student organizations that would appeal to the administration, right, for, with a set of demands, right? Mm-hmm. And all, all based around, you know, various... Um, you know, social justice concerns about equity and things like that right. and representation. And, you know, and some of them well-founded. But, you know, what I noticed is, that, again, is like there would be two or three considered points. You know, you know, this teacher has to change the way they teach this class. Like you definitely do need to hire, you know, somebody from a historically underrepresented group. You know, if the faculty's all white, it's, it's not great, you know. But there was this other thing that crept in, which is like, and we want two days off a week or, and we want less homework. And it's like, and people thought of those as the same thing. You know, they, they, they saw, they, they thought that there was, they, they all just got kind of lumped into this bucket of, you know, stuff that's not fair, mm. you know? Right. And I ended up on the wrong side of a few of these arguments. I didn't, I didn't get kind of like cast out or, or anything like that, but but it just I I I saw you know these conversations kind of open up into this territory where because professors were so 
anxious to not be called out as bigots, right? Students were able to make really unreasonable demands. You know what I mean? And 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 once you and then once you I saw that you kind of can't unsee it. You know, yeah. there's this thing of like, whoa, 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 so like, you know, we're not really. At some point, we stop having a conversation. You know, we're not actually exchanging information anymore. This just becomes about, you know, who can, who has, who has power. You yeah. know, especially in the in the overtly consumerist framework uh, where co- students are the consumers and they're they're making demands of management. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that's the other thing is is that like there is this there was always this it is so gross this idea that like well we need to get you know the administration to come in and solve these problems because the faculty are, are are at fault here and it's like the administration doesn't I mean you know we we are in fucking acting school it's just like yeah. they don't know they don't know shit about how to run this program right you know they they're, they're not qualified to make decisions about you know your your life as a as a, as an artist like they're not gonna, they're not going to help you do this they just want you to shut up you know what I mean? Like so, and and, and the other thing that happened is like, I don't think you see this all the time t- uh, in in all in these conversations across the board, which is that people just had no idea that there was uh, that there would ever be a cost for these opinions, or there was ever any sort of idea about like what implementing that would look like. It was just enough to have the grievance, mm. you know. And 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 in some ways, that has actually come to uh, meaningful ends at Brown. Like that's a tuition free program now huh. because of some of that, of, of that activism. And, you know, I think that's really great. And then there's other things where, you know, I go back there and I, I see the way the schedule is run or I see the way the classes are taught and talk to certain teachers about it. And there's other ways in which the program is worse for it. So it's like, you know, it, it just, it's this, it's this thing of, I walked away from that set of experiences, just really disturbed that the way that these conversations end up going down, there's a, there's an assumption kind of baked into this that there's the pure on one side and, you know, the wicked on the other. And, and that that's a sort of impassable boundary both ways. And, and I don't know, for me, like, that, that's not why I became... An, an actor and like I, I I'm interested in you know the nuances of you know human psychology and of the ways in which you know fundamentally if you put people in you know if you put people in different people in the same situation they're probably going to do the same thing you know what I mean I think that that, that this that's kind of touches of, on the idea that we had a, one of our first podcast episodes we talked about um, you know cultural appropriation issues <laughs> yeah, and sure. the thing is is that you know what's frustrating to hear about that is that in art you're always having to you're always in an act of empathy. You're always in an act of trying to of trying to navigate interpersonal relations and and structural relations, right? Um, the the grievances about the situation that everyone's in could be navigated through the exercise that you're already learning how to do. It, it can be navigated through the art. No, um, no I, I totally I totally agree. It's it's incredibly disturbing to watch people who <laughs> hypothetically believe in you know. Things like the the universality of 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 people's humanity, you know what I mean, and then the possibility for real immediate connection as as this transformative act that can restructure not just the individual but society itself. I mean, this is the sort of messianic pretensions that go into anybody who wor- works in theater and cares about it. But you know, to, to see people like that then turn around and just completely flatten out their political conversations and, and, and really, and, and not just 
in in realms where politics come up, but to try to bring the political in as an aesthetic, you know what I mean, into their work. And and once it's there, again, it just has this sort of like, it just levels all nuance and distinction, and it just you know, and and it's it's, it's just it's incredibly discouraging. It's, it's a it, I I guess what's kept me away from like really far left. I've like I have, my politics has drift, have drifted significantly left from the, about the same time that you're saying. So since 2007, 2008, you know, following the financial crisis and certain work experiences, that kind of stuff. Sure. But what's kept me from going you know full DSA left is that any of the the people that I've talked to about it have immediately come to like. A point of, I'm I am a I'm a white man. And they're like, well, you can't talk, and you you don't get first dibs on a at a meeting to speak, even if you have a valid. Maybe if you had, I have a lot of work experience in healthcare. I'm like, I I have been working in health IT for a long time. I have some thoughts about how health insurance works and all that stuff. But they're like, no, you're immediately put back because you're already part of a privileged class of people just by nature of the, the genetics I was born with. Whereas I'm like, I understand I understand that there have been a lot of people that have been wronged. For other problems, that, based on their, you know, where, where their circumstances, whether it be poverty, race, or uh, gender identity, or whatever it may be, or sexual identity. Sure. But but I feel then I've just instantly alienated me, and I'm sure a lot of other people that would be like, hey, look, I'm concerned about like getting everybody on board with on board with an economic justice thing for all of us, and you've just demoted me, <laughs> like off the like wholesale, the the somewhere along the way, the identity politics of things like lapped. The, what the what the end the the end goal was. And well, I think you you put your finger on it there, which is, is that there. This is, this is my experience of it too. Is that like at some point we just become completely divorced from action, right? You know, and and it's not just about you know kind of real politique and kind of whatever kind of cold blooded raw lizard brain pragmatism is necessary to force things through. I mean, I'm pretty suspicious of political idealism in general, but, mm -hmm. but we'll leave that to the side. But like, I, it just is, the, the, you just come to understand in those conversations that nobody is interested in accomplishing anything. Yeah. And for, it was really visceral for me because, you know, I, I, I love to work. I like rehearsing plays. I like performing in plays. And, and that, that's, you know, for me, that's, that's the part of it that I really, is really satisfying is it is, is the profession of it is, mm -hmm. is, 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 you know, sweating it out. Yeah. And, you meet people who <laughs> who aren't interested in, in that at all, and I think that you, you you see this in every type of conversation like this, which is just you you stop being interested in results at all, right? And it just becomes about a kind of boundary policing, right? You know, and it's just it's completely silly. Um, you know, I, I think that the politically the thing that the thing that makes it dangerous is it's not just that you risk alienating you know, well-meaning allies, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it creates this this echo chamber where, you know, it is, is like, you know, the revolution eats its own children. You end up saying these crazy things that just feed into the already conspiracy theory-laden right, you know? And yeah. it's like all these things that are just, you know, the fucking Breitbart wet dream of what, you know, like liberal snowflakes think and people pe and people will sort of like people people feed that and it's yeah. just crazy yeah um before we continue on with uh like the your trajectory which we might have already gotten to the end of but um just to stop off on the acting identity politics thing sure um i actually regarding so there was a controversy with like you know um jared leto should not play a trans woman in um dallas buyers club you know right. because Basically, I think one one argument is basically just that it's taking an acting 
you know, a potential role away from a trans actor. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other idea is that basically it, it's kind of reinforcing to us that it's really a man. Um, I kind of get that. Like, I roll my eyes a lot of identity politics stuff, but I also get that. Um, I don't know. How do you navigate these these questions? Because, it, it, I mean, it is... Oh, interesting. We as an audience do see it as a representation, and, it, you know... I think it just depends. I think it's all about the results. I think there's no the, the the thing about this stuff is that there's just there's just no rule to make. The only thing that matters is whether the art's good at the end. So you know, I think uh, black act. I mean, I like I don't have a problem with a white actor playing Othello. Hmm. You know what I mean? As long as as long as the production makes sense of that through the rest of its choices, there's no there's no rule why that can't be done. Right? It's like you know. I think it's hard. It's a hard choice to justify. You, you, you put yourself in a hole you're going to have to climb out of for sure. But like, there's satisfying ways to, to do it. I'm sure. Is this, is this the highbrow inverse solution of a black man playing James Bond? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, but so I guess with Jared Leto, what I would say is like, you know, actors like the, the, the whole point of acting is pretending that you're somebody else. So if he can do that part in a way that like gives dignity to that person's story and makes us like like empathize with their experience and broadens our humanity and performance I don't really give a shit like that that that's the only thing that I care about is the result right I'm not concerned with and just in the same way I'm not concerned with whatever crazy kind of method acting you know, antics he wants yeah, to get true. up in order, Very, yeah. in order to, in order to get up to it. You know, it's just it's just not important to well, me. Isn't that also though? I mean, isn't that partially the tension in that also comes down to where film becomes a commercial art, and like Jared Leto is a household name. He sells tickets. Like it's a lot of politics. Yeah, you know, he's he's been obviously a proven Hollywood actor in a lot of feature films, right. and like and in you know like films directed by award-winning film directors you know so it's like that's another thing where it's like well you know and maybe trans people have some trans a, actors haven't been given that opportunity if you were to time, strip away the commercial considerations of that movie maybe it, you know and you put them on the exact same plane then then it is different right yeah, yeah. sure although i think in in some ways like there's market solutions to those kinds of problems too i mean black panther right is like is sold more than any other marvel yeah. movie you know what i mean it's it's not like those two things are irreconcilably opposed. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. like people, like people want. You know, I, I guess what I, I think is is that like I'm interested in in representation in as much as I'm interested in new stories. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm interested in like art that's colorful and vibrant and diverse because that makes it good, right? right. You know what I mean? I, I I think that that focusing on it as an end in and of itself sort of defeats the point. It's, it's you know, and I just want to. This is an, an errant thought, but I was. Uh, I'm like culturally illiterate when it comes to TV, and so I'm working on simultaneously catching up on Arrested Development and The Office. <laughs> and both of those shows are shows in which Patrice O'Neill has bit parts as like just background black guys that have like two. Like he's T Bone in, in Arrested Development, and he's one of the the um, dock the, workers the in The Office. Workers. Yeah. 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 And this he guy, has some good lines as a warehouse worker, though. He, he pulls some good punches. Yeah, in. Like, but he's yeah. probably more of a natural comedic genius than, like, he's up there with anyone on that show. Like, I mean, oh, it, yeah. like, Patrice O'Neill's, like, stand-up. I, I think it's a stand-up, yeah. but it, Yeah, I mean, exactly. It, it, no, yeah. but I mean, my point is, like, you know, even, even, I think that representation and the considerations about representation are, I, I think we would all agree they're there for a reason, um, you know, and maybe focusing on them to the exclusion of 
any kind of like aesthetic consideration is not, uh, it, it seems a little silly to me, but, uh, it, I mean, like, I also see why they're there though. You know, there's a lot, like, there's a lot of white guys and a lot of, in yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. I, I guess I think to me in the, in the case, I mean, in the specific case of the, the Dallas Buyers Club example, you know, it's like, well, you know, were that played by a trans person, were Jared Leto's character played by an actual trans actor, might be great. Again, but to what Griffin's saying is that, like, if it were played by Caitlyn Jenner, it would suck. Like, it would not be good. Because she's not like, a good actor. Right. Well, that's my point, is that it's, like, not, it's, like, it's, it, 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 maybe if she was an excellent actor, it, it would be great. It would, Remember like, when Crispin Glover got in trouble for, um, he directed a movie that had an all Down Syndrome cast, and nobody oh, yeah. nobody could make heads or tails of whether of what if, if there was a punchline there or if he was and I don't know <laughs> I don't if he knows this. but uh, yeah anyway all right so well we so it sounds like <laughs> just to kind of continue on the topic so it sounds like basically what you're saying Griffin is that from this experience with people that um, kind of told on themselves uh, with not being serious about their like with their their performance of politics you kind of got the idea. I, I mean, I agree, but like that, this is basically like a juvenile thing, or that it's rooted in some kind of juvenilia. And 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 did that go on to color your? Well, yeah. The, the, then you know, a couple of other things happened as well. It was like the Google memo came out. You know, fucking yeah. Trump got elected yes, to president yeah. of the United States. You Wait, know, the that, Google memo was on the same the James uh, <laughs> the James Demore thing. Yeah. yeah, that was wild because I was just like, who the fuck cares? And like, and every like. All of my close friends, I, I know a lot of people that work in tech, people were so upset about it. You know what I mean? And really twisting themselves in knots about this and, you know, you know, sharing all this stuff online and there's all this, you know, interacting with you and clearly soliciting, you know, your outrage too. And it's just like, why, why, why does this matter at all? You know what I mean? And, and then, you know, just, just too, it's like, in, in the wake of, like I said, in the wake of Trump's election, there was all this sort of recrimination and soul searching on the left and all this, you know, this disgust with sort of establishment politics and the line between sort of, well, here's, here's the sort of whatever incremental incrementalist adjustments that we need to make in order to course correct and win elections that 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 tips over into and now we're going to restructure all of society without a second thought and and that set of attitudes i mean it was also some other stuff i was reading at the time so like uh, i'm a big james baldwin fan and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. his work yeah there's one of his books is up there (laughs) oh nice so um so one of the things that I really love about the way that Baldwin writes is um, he, I think he brought into unbelievable, clear focus the delusion that most Americans live in about their relationship to politics. I really think that like in other countries, people have a much more transparent, straightforward connection to their political interests than Americans do. And we really, and I think this is part of why all this culture war insanity has gotten so hot is because people are, are, people really think of politics as the expression of their, their, their values and ideals much less than they think of it in terms of like, this will lower my, this will lower my. It's limbic rather than rational. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, I, I, I think about it in terms of like, you know, People think about it as identity rather than in terms of interest. And so it's like, and I think that Baldwin showed how clearly that that, that happens for people. I mean, he talks about, you know, 
just the, the distance between black and white experiences of America is you know, how deep, I mean, either of you see, I'm not your Negro. Yes. It's excellent. Yeah. You it's great. It. Right? You, you've not seen it. Oh, no, I've, I've you got to check it out. It's, it's on Amazon prime. It's awesome. It's yeah. really good. It's really well done. But he talks about in that, in that movie, he talks about, you know, um, what does he call them? He says, I think he calls them the dreamers, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, like, what amazed me about that movie, and this is a sidebar, yeah. is, and I think it's the reason why people, Americans in particular, have caught their identity up with their politics as opposed to politics as a means towards a, you know, achieve, achieve, achieving goals for a group of people that they're in, yeah, yeah. is because of the medium of our time, like the particularly social media has has confused people's, like they've confused the idea of their identity with. Um, with their actual economic and political goals. But I would say, and in, in what amazed me about the documentary is James Baldwin talking to, there's A, just lecturing, and then B, also just talking on the television station where he's having a rational conversation with somebody and they're not screaming at each other and they're not having like, <laughs> and, and, and with somebody who's sure. ideologically completely opposed to what James Baldwin is putting forward, but they're actually having a meaningful and thought. Like, yeah. That's always sucks watching old YouTube like that. You're like, come on, come back. You're like, yeah. oh, where's the Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson element to this. But anyway, oh my, my point, my point is, I guess I didn't really have a point. No, 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 no. The, but you're saying that James Baldwin referred to people. So he, in, he has a white like, class. Yeah, yeah. He talks about the dreamers. Right. And so he has this idea that like white America lives in this fantasy of America where they never have to encounter the actual costs of the civilization. Right. They never have to look at, you know, the subaltern, the, 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 the underbelly, the, the, you know, the, it's like, um, you know, this idea that, well, because slavery and the legacy of racism are entirely in the past, right? That those don't persist in material ways in our, in, in, in our culture because we just never have to confront it. And, you know, you know, cue images of, you know, smiling families in the suburbs with, you know, two and a half kids and a, you know, and a golden retriever and, you know, a, a fucking Buick, right? Mm-hmm. And all these ways in which, you know, our, our society becomes this sort of like, airless, manufactured, sanitized um, f- fantasy where, where actions don't have consequences, right? And, and, and I think that that runs really deep in American politics. And it's actually one of the reasons that, the, the, you know, I agree with a lot of things Bernie Sanders says, but some of the things I don't like about him is, is that, like, I think he really kind of plays into this sort of... Um, very naive idealism that comes so easily to Americans. This kind of politics of delusion where it's it's like, if I just think that something's right enough, if I'm just morally justified enough, it must come to pass. And then really there's a sort of contempt for any kind of like hard nose or kind of cold blooded attitude as sort of cynical. And, you know, it's just like not everybody who wants to get shit done is Mitch McConnell. Yeah, you know what I mean. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I, I am not the the biggest. I, I we'll put it this way: when he was running directly against Hillary, I was like, you know, Hillary is talking like someone who's going to actually have to govern, and that's the difference. And that's why you know, and I think that that's why the the promises are not as grandiose. And I, I'm not saying that you couldn't have things like Medicare for all. Of course, these things are possible to achieve, but I think that generally, um, there's a sense that we're. We're in a moment where we know, when when we're when politics are stuck, they don't get unstuck through compromise. They get unstuck through one movement trouncing another, right? And I think that we that that Trump to some degree feels like a man of his time because 
we un- and maybe Bernie does too, because we understand that there's going to have to be a, it's it's one way versus another, and you know it's going to be a movement that that gets something done. And so why compromise at when you're try- especially when it is so so emotional, and you know you're trying to get people excited for something, and and I think also the the you know the final um, argument in favor of of uh, not calibrating uh, not gearing towards pragmatism in, in, in a mode of politics is that it's so broken. You know, it's, it's been so brazen. The other side, um, you know, the, the tax cut was, was heinous and it was, sure. you know, it was, it was very, it was a wish list basically. So like, here's our wish list. Right. Know? Um, what I would say to that though, is that, and obviously I'm looking at, I forgot to take down my Bernie sign from my window. <laughs> Clearly I'm, I support Bernie, but it's kind of interesting you guys are saying that because I think why I've taken such a hard turn towards supporting Bernie mm-hmm. is Exactly what you were saying, Griffin, before about Americans will just kind of like default to this kind of feeling of like, oh, well, that's just what I want. So let's do that and let's ignore it. And I think that's maybe root cause bad, but I do believe that a Bernie Sanders administration would be followed up by the technocracy and and pol- policy making that a Hillary Clinton probably further to the left and for more left minded people inside of it right. but i think in the time we live in particularly in the medium of exchange that we live in it's important to just put the person out there who people like a Donald Trump who like he by whether it was by luck or whatever it was was the man of the time was just e- easily able to point out to a lot of people in America that like hey look i i, I am your voice this is what's wrong. You you clearly have been screwed over. Bernie Sanders has been saying similar things, and it's like and the the third way ishness of Hillary Clinton doesn't like. She may be right. She's a very smart person. I don't doubt that in a lot of in like a policy making yeah. sense, but like in a way that's going to resonate with what has to be like three hundred thirty well, million sure. people. Sure. Yeah. The thing, the well, I just want to jump in and say one thing. I I, I understand this to I subscribe to that. To, um, in the sense that I think that we, we realized how much politics is about priority setting, less about getting things done. Um, there will always be the ability in this system that we currently have, there will always be the ability to put someone to put in technocrats under you that are faceless, that do know what they're doing. And being able to set the ideological agenda is not only what ultimately matters, but all, but what gets through to people. Um, the, what I, what I don't like is when people blindly or like blithely criticize pe- things like, like there's a reason why third way Democrats happened. It's because they lost three presidential elections in a row, and you know, like it, the country is, the country is fundamentally conservative. I mean, like I, I believe that there's not a liberal majority in this country, um, and it, and that it, it's like a big claim, but you know, like we, if you think about who's conservative, like well, rich guys are conservative. People who are doing well are conservative. This country is insanely powerful. It's the richest country in the world. Pretty much, and um, you know, why would we not? It like even from that lens, it follows that this country is naturally pretty conservative and like interested in perpetuating its own power. And so, I my point is, I'm I'm down. If what we're gonna do now is have a messy politics of ideology, then I'm down to switch to that mode. But I also understand, and I think Griffin, this is part of where you were coming from. I understand the utility. Uh, of having uh, good management, basically. And I think that our politics uh, switched from that, uh, offering good management, to offering, um, to you know, it, it failed to, to recognize this massive discontent. Um, and, and we're all kind of catching up with realizing that that's the d- driving force. I couldn't agree more. 
so I think that in in all politics, right, there has to be some kind of balance, right, between pragmatism and idealism, right? I mean, people people in unless you want people to be disenfranchised, they have to be motivated, right? And so, you know, my own personal taste for technocrats, that doesn't fucking matter, right? We need to win elections. And in order to do that, you need to have messaging that gets people excited, right? And and you have to have a message as well, right? I think that that in many ways is the biggest flaw in the Clinton campaign is, you know, it's really just, you know, more of the same, please, thank you very much, right? So I think that... What Trump's election really put into sharp focus for me is is that people are so desperate for some story that makes sense of their lives, right? That they'll vote rabidly against their own interest, right? And, and that's not a good thing, you know? Like, and if there's some way to dial that back, that would be a good thing, right? So I'm not saying that, like, there's no, it's not important for the left to sort of reinvent itself in a way that, you know, gets not just, you know, young people and minorities excited to vote, but also, you know, wins over Republicans. I actually think it's critical that we do that. But I just mean that the way in which we do that matters intensely. And, and, and it can't just be about sort of turning up the volume on this, totally this on, on this idea of like, basically, you know, purging, you know, the impure from our politics. You know, that, that, that's really what I, what I object to is, 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 is not so much that like the idea of, of, of political rhetoric as such as is that like is the tribalism, you know. What, what I would say is that I kind of disagree with the idea that America is a conservative country. I think America really? self-identifies as a conservative country. But it, I think had... Franklin Delano Roosevelt not died and lived to serve as like the remainder of his fourth term. Seven terms. Yeah, like, yeah. like, like essentially what the closest thing this country had to a, a dictatorship. Um, yeah. But like in that time, a lot of things were passed that have. It was know, the style at the time. It was the style. We wore our pants that way, and we had we had so, social security brought to you by the government as the style at the time, not right. this privatized stuff that they're talking about. Um, but things like um, at that point. Probably a healthcare system would have been or a national healthcare system would have been created, and, and like that was part of his second bill of rights, uh, um, a, a more uh, a, intense labor rule, rules would have been put in place. Also, at the start of you know, like initially, America in the past, I guess, forty years, you'd say, you know, reaped the benefits of being an initially conservative kind of like neoliberal country, where they're just like, okay, well, what if we start rolling back labor rights and get rid of unions and this kind of stuff, and what if we open up all these trade agreements with people, and people signed up for that against their own interests, mm. but are unable to identify. Well, that's actually that's why you don't have. You know, that's not why you're not working nine to five anymore. Like that's why yeah. you're working three jobs, and that's why you you have to negotiate with four different healthcare companies about your health insurance. And also, yeah, okay, globalization is great for you. You you can afford a Samsung television now, but you also like half your town is unemployed, and your kids are on opioids. Like you, the, you like the I they and then Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump come along and say it's like look like th these policies that were, these neoliberal like globalist policies were put in place, and they. Your life sucks now, like, like unfortunately. Um, I think that Americans are hard to trace back to the source of their 
their misery, but they do recognize when things aren't going right and they'll find a way to blame somebody. But see, I think that, 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 that example you just gave really clearly illustrates like just what I'm talking about, which Mm -hmm. is that like, there is this, there is this intense hatred for this globalist class Mm -hmm. of, of owners. You know what I mean? And I think that, you know, that is misplaced. You know, I think that the, the road to, international prosperity and national prosperity is pretty narrow, Mm. right? Globalization is a good thing, in my opinion, full stop. It has to be managed in certain ways. The wealth has to be redistributed so that the people in Ohio don't get totally fucking hosed. Right, right. right? And we did a, we cocked that up terribly and that's why they now vote Republican. Right. But I I think that there's part of the, part of what motivates this sort of politics that we're talking about in our particular little bubble of, you know, v- v- fringy sort of weird Twitter, uh, like left chapo that, trap house. Yeah, type yeah, exactly. a, a, lot, a lot of what motivates that politics is is this sense is 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 this resentment for and hatred of like a a class that's responsible for <laughs> for building the wealth of the world, and I just think that's crazy. Um, I just the one thing I would say is that they. The people that I guess using Medicare for all, because hey, that's the one that I'm most knowledgeable about, I guess, and it is relevant to my day to day work, is that people at the end of the day, if they get their health insurance covered, whether it's via an insurance company provided by their employer or the government or whatever or whoever, I think they'd be fine. But I think the, they, they'd they wouldn't care who it's coming from at the end of the day as yes. long as they have it. So whatever, so the technocrats all think that way. But the reality is that people are saying, it's like, well, all I've seen in the past three years is my copay. Like, copays go up. Obama tried, tried his best. And I think I don't fault him for this because at, to- at the politics of the time, he was like, well, I'll negotiate with the other side and compromise. And surely this will come to a, an American resolution. Yep. And then he got completely... You know, like blown out of the way with like the, the the public option was eliminated essentially and rewritten because of health insurance, the yep. health insurance lobby, um, and people were like, "Well, now Obamacare sucks," and I still uh, my the solution of me having health care for a handful of Americans is better, but for most, it's like, "Well, my copays and deductibles are going up, and I don't really see any difference for me." So it's like, the, the, at the end of the, then they're like, "Well, what?" What choice do I have but to vote for another way? <laughs> like, but I, I, you, I think you guys are talking about different things, though, yeah. because you're, and I think they're both valid. I mean, like Brian, your point, I I agree with. Like, if we had, there's actually your point is probably best evinced by the fact that there really hasn't been a liberal program in the last century that anyone regrets. You know, we're never going to get rid of Social Security. We're never going to get rid of uh, Medicare, and nor, nor should we. I mean, we shouldn't do these things. Right. Um, the FDIC, you know, like the, that was probably socialist to somebody at some point. Um, and I think, and there would have been many more. And, and I, I think what you're saying is that like, you know, baking into the, uh, you're, you're answering the, the charge of America being a fundamentally conservative country with what is currently considered, um, you know, like un, if you unravel, uh, what's currently considered liberal and, and conservative, a lot of the, the undergirding framework that, you know, take your hands off, keep your government hands off of Medicare and stuff. Right. These are all, okay, that's true. Um, and also, given what you're saying, I think is also true, though, but that it's separately, um, there's a lot of mass resentment against these owners. Um, they can both be true, but the reason that, like, the reason, the, there are different arguments about what's motivating people. Like, 
fundamentally, all of these liberal policies that FDR wanted to, that the sort of FDR-ish, Truman-ish um, aspirations are sort of hy- hygienic. It's like making sure you're not on the street. It's not mm-hmm. offering you a route to self-fulfillment, right? I don't think, where I, where I sign on to, Griffin, what you were saying about these people created the wealth of the world, I understand what you're saying, and I agree. And the fact that we have a computer that was made in, you know, with a complicated supply chain to record our potentially radical socialist anarchist podcast on, and certainly the ones that are recording anarchist San- podcasts. Are recording. Lenny, we're a Sandinista podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. We're, we, went, we went the other way. Um, you know, they're recording on expensive laptops, too. And, and, they're, and there does seem to be a level of ingratitude for it and ingratitude that almost comes across as ignorance. It's like, do you even understand how this works? What I will say is that I think that uh, these are the same consideration, right? There is a neoliberal argument for medic for health universal health care because then we have a more competitive for public education because you have a more competitive economy and you know these are th- i think these are basically the same consideration it's on un- if you go to a place that's that doesn't have a functioning system you don't get functioning capitalism if you don't have functioning capitalism you really don't have a route to self-expression um one problem i think that is like a defining characteristic of our world is that there is no more religion. There's no more, um, you know, public square really to speak of. It's mm-hmm. been, you know, memefied. Right. Um, <laughs> there's, there's nothing to stand in the way of, uh, there's nothing to build community around anymore. Okay. And so the only thing that happens is this natural acquisitive impulse of capitalism goes so far that it ends up getting encoded in law. And you, and that's why copays are going up because there is no public shame to prevent these companies from being, but that's not to say that the system of trade that they uh, that they think they participate in should be abolished because it would be, be that's the Stone Age. That for me is where I've sort of landed in terms of going from believing that art mattered in some profound sort of global way that it can change the world by changing people's hearts or, or whatever. That This is actually what I've come to think now, which is that the reason that art matters is like it actually gives us that kind of social fabric that's so important. It gives us a common set of assumptions about the way the world works. It allows us to be in some kind of loose communion with each other. And, and I think that like, you know, What's again like what's so disturbing about Trump is like like the story that he tells is so vulgar, right? And so fucking dumb that the only reason this succeeds is because nobody else tells stories at all. You know what I mean? And so like my 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 concern is about the kinds of you know, new left politics that you see now is, is not that there's, is that they, 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 they want to motivate people on masses is just like, well, how are you motivating people? And with, you know, and when, what emotions are you, are you calling on? I mean, like I'm in terms of policies, you know, I'm, I'm a, I believe in the welfare state. You know what I mean? I think, you know, the government needs to be involved in redistributing income, right? Otherwise the whole thing is, you, we, you know, the whole thing gets cocked up. It's just right. not good. Right. You know, but it's, I think that there's a, a short-sightedness to this idea that, like, well, if we can just get into power hard enough and long enough, all the all the problems go away. And this is, and, and this is where I agree with you. America is a conservative country. People who voted for Donald Trump aren't going away. Yeah, you know, we have oh, to find I, a way to live with them. Well, I, uh, yeah, and I know. I mean, I'm related to a bunch of them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and. Um, and can I, I think, can I say one thing about that? Uh, I think that actually one one articulation of that idea that art the the utility of art is to social the social cohesion. 
came from I always re- regret every time I have to cite him but Bill Maher had a really good new rule like five years ago about gay Start marriage Start the clock <laughs> <laughs> ben, ben and his friends whenever someone would make a bad joke he would go bum 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 but um, Bill Maher had a, had a valid point uh, when the gay marriage debate was like raging and he said um, there's the difference between society and culture. Let us in Hollywood handle culture. We're the ones that are going to turn people and build the, the social fabric and, and kind of a, a shared grammar around gay rights and then these being people. Mm-hmm. And then and then the society will follow the culture. I, I would say that, but I think back to, I think what we're discovering as this conversation goes on is that formerly you used to have to, whether there was a public square or even just you lived in a city and there was just a, a stage in a theater you'd go to or whatever and, and engage with art in that way or go to an art museum or go to a concert or whatever it might or be. Or church. Or church or go to some kind of religious service. Um, you know, and uh, you would engage in a public space that way. But now we live in a time of, because of these magic machines that we are broadcasting this podcast from that you can... Find these people, whether you're on the left or right, or you just drift left or rightward, and engage in the art that only is relevant to that cultural space. And then that kind of gets like funnels you in the algorithms of these things are written in a way specifically. It's like how people can go from watching a I watched the Flat Earth documentary like the other day. Did you guys see this on Netflix? No, it's like no. <laughs> it's fantastic. But like it's <laughs> it's really it's more I mean, it's an examination in how people consume media right. and convince and you know and mental illness consumed through media um, like and can convince themselves via I mean I wouldn't consider a flat earth YouTube video art but some people do and they like get consumed in and they get channeled by an algorithm down this whole culture wormhole where they're just completely isolated amongst these communities of people that are so far divorced from the truth of reality that they also believe that well maybe you know game show president is actually a good businessman when he's like not yeah. really a good business like you know the people in the, like the irony that Donald Trump is so popular to people in Alabama and Mississippi and like where people in New York are like oh that guy was like has been a joke here for forever like in his hometown and, and like but I guess my point is that like the difference is art used to live in a space where you could engage with it and it would challenge you a little bit but now it's like the tough thing about art now is that it's like well and it's, I think maybe Griffin, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe what you're saying is that like you guys are speaking to yourselves here, like with the, whatever you're representing in art or being lazy, or, or like as opposed to just like as opposed to let's go challenge the people that really need to like think about things. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's how this whole this is what this is at the heart of what I find so disturbing about the way the leftist politics operate in my industry, which is that like it just narrows the bandwidth of expression to such a narrow, narrow little bit of the population that we interact with, right? When we're really talking to ourselves a lot of the times, and you know, I think that there is that that at bottom has to do with this. this kind of despair that you can reach people that are different than you. You know, it all becomes about this idea. I mean, in some ways it's just like supercharging the base. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that's like like a lot of people that I know and work with are not interested in changing anybody's mind or introducing any oxygen into the system. They really are just, it's just about, you know, we want to celebrate our values even more and rah, rah. And it's like, 
I just think that that, again, is part of this whole... It's not just happening on the left. Obviously, it's happening on the right in an even worse way, but those people, for the most part, aren't the, in theater. The yeah. difference, yeah. the big difference is that the right is there. Yes, they have purity tests, but it's a celebration of id. It's me, 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 anger, anger, anger. I want to kill anyone who infuriates me. Um, we're, we're getting close to the end here, so I just want to... We, we, we've been dancing around this idea of what the left has become and all the... And, and I just want to say outright what I... What the kind of reason we wanted to talk about this was is that what we live in a demographic here in New York City and in Brooklyn specifically um, that is terrified. It lives in fear, in like a near-Soviet fear of being called out as ignorant. And I think the fundamental reason that this kind of leftism has taken this really almost despotic overtone is because it's not an expression of politics. It's not an expression of, or I don't think it is. I don't think it's an expression of, I've analyzed what I think improves the human condition. And I've concluded that, you know, we need, uh, you know, to overthrow whatever, you know, and just seize the means of production. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that it's, and maybe listen, I'm all for seizing the means of production in some context, uh, but like shareholder ownership or whatever. But, um, it's not about that. It, it, it's it's about a class signifier. It's a way to get laid. It's a way to get laid. It's a way to not to. It's a way to not keep yourself from getting laid. It's basically um, in, having an in, iPhone. In, in my case, it definitely. Anytime I talk anything remotely about this, my fiance is not very much interested in, <laughs> in anything sexual. It's a turn off. <laughs> so, but it's like for her. It, it is. It is a totally performative exercise of leftism that we live in. And, and it's really frustrating to be around. I totally, I would love to be able to sign on to a more realistic enforcement of identity politics, for example, because it's a needed innovation in the culture. And it's probably, we're at the point, because I think of the emoluments of capitalism and things, we've gotten to a point in society where we're comfortable enough to start taking these steps to really face redress. Like, we should talk about reparations, reparations and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Absolutely. These are, this is the right think direction to be pointing but the tenor that it's taking is so terrified of stepping out of bounds that you know and because it's not actually interested in accomplishing these things no it has no interest in organizing or or yeah like you said results right and it's because it comes out of the specific context of campuses and these like tiny coastal elites right and who have you know huge cultural cachet right and you know, and, and outsized weight on the culture, right? And are enti- and feel entitled to a corresponding political uh, voice. I think it has, uh, it it does have to do with that, with the, with the homogenized base of it. I also think it's a fashion statement. It, in other words, what fashion means is you are bored of everything. You're you're if oh, it's, it's an effete origin of how, this, right? How like, yeah, <laughs> like well, it's like you know, it, it's like the way that you like listen to the way rich people talk. They're always melodramatically I'm starving oh, I'm, I'm exhausted you know right, like right, this right. same thing decadence it's total decadence yeah. and the idea that you know like you know and, and I guess one specific thing I want to respond to that none of us said but I've certainly heard it and this is the statement that I really wanted to put on record is you know hearing people talk about like ending capitalism and stuff seriously like Matt Chrisman on Chapel Trap House is a brilliant mind, and the fact that he can unironically speak about ending capitalism as some sort of prescription is a fucking joke. Yeah. And the fact that we've that this demographic of people has talked themselves into it, um, it is entirely a function of, you know, th- th- this we have gotten comfortable enough, and certainly these people are. You're not going to find anyone generally, genuinely, generally of the working class. 
uh, that feels this way, certainly you're never going to find anyone at Verso Books that want to go wants to go be the janitor at Verso Books and and you know or go clean the bathrooms at Penn Station or something like that. This is an upper class movement, and um, I I think that for all the class awareness, which I think which you know which has I think the the materialist uh, rendering of history is very useful, but it is it it's it's totally and this is not the first socialist movement in in the Western world that has been mostly a, a class exercise, a, a, an exercise well, of elitism. Well, that's the, of the petite bourgeois. Right? Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, kind of has to be, though, doesn't it? Isn't that what like, Marx and Engels said? Sh- anyway? <laughs> no, they said it was going to be the working class. Yeah, like they said that. it was going to be a self-liberation. I, yeah, I and, guess the, so. and not to shut down the possibility of that, but that my point is an authentic exercise of working class angst is a totally different proposition than the kind of... You don't believe in the Oregon. Vanguard party? <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten copies of the Vanguard. Well, that's, that's what actually... Again, that's another thing that actually... Like, I am very much interested in like left politics, but what turns me off to any kind of Brooklyn DSA meeting or whatever is that like the second people start saying comrade or Vanguard, I'm like, I'm out. I'm like, I'm not yeah. interested in this. <laughs> like, I'm just like, I, I, that, again, and that's me, you know, uh, like... And that will definitely, I agree, will not convince any working class people to be like, unless they're going to like Bobovakian meetings or something like that. Right. right. Like, 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 uh, if you, but if you speak to somebody like the janitor at Verso Books about something that's like, hey man, like if you, if we can figure out a way to unionize you, we'll make your working hours go from 70 to 35 and you can actually probably pay your rent and have a little bit left over to go to a baseball game or something like that. Yeah. Like, like that's the kind of politics that, I I mean, is, is that, to me, is that, and, is that ending capitalism or is that just like social? You know what I mean? I guess I like not truly. I mean, dis- I don't think socialism is inimical to capitalism. I think socialism is an application of capitalism. Okay. Well then it's redistribution. So then I guess the then, then, that then that's the main thing. Or a constraint of it or whatever. Right. Yeah, sure. Right, yeah. Yeah. So then I guess that's my point. I, or not really my point, but whatever. Griffin, yeah. take us out. <laughs> no, I mean, I just wanted to stress again that I think that like, the reason that this stuff doesn't fucking matter at all is because it just comes from this like incredibly narrow slice of the population that has this like total historical amnesia and sense of entitlement about like what's due to them. And the way that that ends up getting expressed is in this sort of soft authoritarianism and this idea that like, well, if only the world were just by my design, it would be fucking great. And people should just be made to listen to me. Griffin, what you don't understand is that if people did listen to me, it would be so much better. <laughs> it would. I, I would. Why I do, would be down for dictator Brian. Why do you think we started this podcast? This Fantastic. Is eventually, um, but I will say, like, kind of to the one, my low and last point as we wrap this up, but it's like, I mean, I'll reference your home state, Lenny, but I think what we have to think about is I work at a comedy theater, and the famous saying in comedy is, will it play in Peoria? And, like, I think that, like, leftist movements have to do think about, like, well, like, yeah, like, what, what does it speak to the the people out in the in in the provinces sure. about like hey, your life can materially get better not by calling somebody comrade and virtue signaling or whatever but being like hey man just like let's start a union and uh, and cut our hours and like vote for Mayor Pete yeah a Buttigieg yeah why not did I say it right I think actually that's <laughs> yeah, the first did, time yeah. I said the name right yeah. yeah. It's butt edge edge, which is hilarious. Uh, I love um, our, our, yeah. our, our edge lord, <laughs> our gay mayor troop. <laughs> um, cool, uh, Griffin. Any last words about uh, how you learned to love capitalism or something? Uh, nah, man. Uh, I love my. I love my. I uh, love. I love my unique low clothes. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> they're so great they um, are and by the way don't let anyone tell you Uniqlo is fast fashion because I'm this is a Uniqlo shirt that I'm wearing I, this is cheesecloth and I bought this like five years ago and it's still intact yes uh, Griffin thank you so much for joining us and Thanks having this, this pretentious convoluted conversation where we're three white guys are talking to ourselves that's the Fantastic. subtitle of this podcast Griffin thank you for being with us yeah <laughs> thanks a lot